2: I think
1: he's a victim of how great he was when you've recorded Darkness and Nebraska and and all these classics. How do you live up to that? And as he admitted in Broadway and in the book and everything else, he's straightforward that he's a myth maker and he's made up a lot of this stuff. But there was always a visceral truth, like, the song Factory off of Darkness really spoke very directly to the experience of, of my dad and a lot of people. And so by the time it got to working on a dream, and I'd been uncomfortable with the production, and certainly I I despise the Seeger sessions. I mean, I think just absolutely God awful. I don't know what he was thinking. And... Live in Dublin, I the Rockabilly Open all night that he did, but that's about the one good track on this two C D thing that I paid full retail well. price.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Set Lusting Bruce, your podcast all about Bruce Springsteen, his music, and mostly his fans. I am your host, Jesse Jackson, and joining me tonight is a Springsteen fan and a writer. And this may get confusing because his first name is Jesse, too. Jesse Adams, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Yeah, so we are thrilled. I'm so looking forward to visiting with you. We met online. You had posted a interesting article about your Springsteen fandom. But before we get to that, tell us a little about yourself.
1: I am a I'm a writer. I'm a former. Uh, I I describe it as somewhere between a journalist and PR flack. I I worked for Columbia University in New York for 11 years covering different schools and different academic initiatives and, and so forth. And before that, I was with Bill Moyers on PBS. I was his blogger and research assistant. And I started my career in alternative rock radio as a DJ and writing ads.
0: So you've been around there a while then, haven't you? Yeah,
1: I have. And I left Columbia to launch a substack called the Ivy Exile, which is a whistleblowing series about my experiences covering institutions that have a lot of prestige and a lot of respect built into their reputations, but aren't really living up to what people assume that they're living up to. As I said, a kind of whistleblower.
0: Yeah. Do you feel like this is something new or is this something that is always been and we just haven't been putting a spotlight on it?
1: I think there have always been issues and there's always been things swept under the carpet. But even during I moved to New York in 2007 and it was possible to have a much more substantive academic or political conversation slash debate then than it is now. I think the rise of social media and polarization and the retiring of the baby boomers and people who were shaped more by a print culture, you've just had more and more replacement by people who spend their whole lives being very online. And so just... Really, intellectual standards have collapsed. I'm sorry to say it, but I was the historian for Columbia Journalism School, for instance, which is what gives out the Pulitzer Prizes. And from having been in proximity to the Pulitzer Prizes, I don't take them seriously at all. Not that there aren't some wonderful Pulitzer winners, but the fact that something has won the Pulitzer Prize is no longer a sign of necessarily that it's very thoughtful or very, I would say, even accurately reported. So th- things have definitely gotten worse over the last 10 to 15 years.
0: Yeah, one of the things that I find is we've lost the, I want everyone to have health insurance, you want everyone to have health insurance, we just disagree how to do it. Let's figure out a way that we can accomplish this goal. I want safe borders. You want safe borders. Let's figure out a way to make that happen that we both can live with, right? The other thing that, Jesse, that really bothers me is, and I, this is not unique to me, and I wish I remember who originally said this because I quote it all the time, people want to believe the best in themselves and the worst and the other person, if I yep. make a joke, it's just because I'm trying to be funny or I'm trying to make a point. If you make that joke, it's because you're a racist POS. And right. <laughs> and it just it there is there truly is no grace in general terms given to a lot of people.
1: Yeah, I mean, my, my parents were social workers, and so I was very raised in the world of social justice and progressivism. I moved to New York, really, to become a public interest journalist. And now that I'm trying to talk about the flaws in our institutions and the fact that if people can't have a conversation anymore, how are we supposed to put together smart policy I get accused of being a conservative or a reactionary or a racist or whatever else. And I feel like I'm living out the values that I learned from my parents who were 60s activists and spent their entire careers helping people. And at the end of the day, I think telling the hard truth is a much greater service than telling people what they want to hear.
0: Absolutely. Let's talk about that. Let's go back to the beginning. So where did you grow up? And were you, was there a lot of music in the house when you grew up? And what kind of music was it?
1: Oh, uh, I'm originally from St. Louis, Missouri. And I'm actually talking to you from, from St. Louis right now. But I, I spend most of my year in New York. My, my parents were both big music fans. Probably less so once they had kids running around. But uh, there was always... A lot of Dylan, a lot of Elvis, a lot of Beatles, a lot of classical music. I've seen the Blues Brothers a thousand times growing up. They were big fans and, and tried to pass that along.
0: When you, do you remember when you started finding your own music, when you, your own taste?
1: I was a nerdy eleven or twelve year old. And so I first got into my own music through film scores, John Williams, Jerry Goldsmith, Miklos Rosa, people like that. And then a couple of years later, in high school as the hormones kicked in, I got a lot more into to rock and roll. So mainly classic rock and alternative rock. So my I listened to a lot of Jeff Buckley, a lot of Tim Buckley, radiohead. Derek and the Dominoes, Pearl Jam, etc.
0: If can you remember when you first discovered Bruce? Where not just casually, but a significance, and what about him spoke to you? What about his music spoke to you?
1: I my brother and I used to hang out at a, a local record store and We would just browse. My allowance was a dollar a week. It would take me months to afford anything. And the most intriguing thing in the whole store was a shrink-wrapped copy of Bruce Springsteen Live 1975-85, which cost about 30 bucks. And I couldn't even imagine having that kind of money. But I would always pick that up and study the song selection on the back. And I just had a sense that this is significant. This is, this is a rock that you can really stand on. And I, I knew I couldn't afford it, but I, I pledged to myself, someday I'm going to understand what Bruce Springsteen is all about. And so I guess probably my freshman or sophomore year of college, I was listening to a lot of Dylan and a lot of Woody Guthrie. And I kept on hearing that Nebraska was the place to start. Nebraska. And so I was bringing in a little more than a dollar a week by that time. So I went and bought the CD and it really spoke to me immediately. My my dad came from a pretty hard scrapple background and had spent a couple of years working in a factory himself uh, before he managed to escape. And so that whole, the whole sympathy for working people and just the interest in telling these stark stories that weren't being told just spoke to me immediately. So I think I moved on to Darkness on the Edge of Town from there and pretty quickly accumulated at least all the classic records from there. I think Bruce really, at his best, combined social consciousness with, I would say, a really visceral sense of what it is to be a young striving dreamer with, with, with all the, the adolescent hormone, the um, back streets and all the rest of it really spoke to me.
2: Hello, Pantheon podcast listeners, Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them.
0: So I always like to preface this, Jesse, with the amount of times you've seen Bruce perform live is not a fair barometer of your fandom, because there are people that have huge fans that have never seen him. There are people that were the right age, going to high school or college in the 70s, living in the Northeast, could have seen him hundreds of times. Do you count how many times you've seen him? And if so, how many?
1: Full disclosure, I'm one of those big fans who's never seen him in person. I've Interesting. Seen the, the Hammersmith DVD, I've seen the Live in Barcelona and Live in Dublin DVDs. I saw his, I thought, rather terrible Super Bowl halftime show appearance, but never in the flesh.
0: Just never worked out? Or any reason? Um... I guess I'd
1: have to look at uh, how actively he was he was touring. And I, I was in college in the mid two thousands, and okay. uh, so I went to a ton of concerts because I was working for a radio station at the time. But we were alternative rock, and one time we got um, Dylan tickets, but Springsteen never came up. So probably. Mainly when I was at the height of my fandom, I just couldn't afford it if he were in the region. And then it was really the release of Working on a Dream in 2009, which disrupted my fandom, so to speak. And so I had plenty of opportunity to go see Springsteen on Broadway, and I probably could have seen him at Madison Square Garden or over oh, the venue in Jersey. Um, what a. The song Wrecking Ball was about which venue again?
0: Yeah, uh, Um, the giant stadium at the time, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um,
1: And so I could have, but by the time I had the means and uh, the ability to go, Springsteen had turned me off enough that I thought, I'm going to stick with my records here.
0: Did, have you taken time to watch Springsteen on Broadway via Netflix?
1: I haven't watched it, but as part of my research for the article, I listened to the audio version.
0: Okay. So yeah, let's get into this. First off, I know from your, not only just what you told me, but because I've had plenty of writers on the podcast, you don't get a choice in the article title that's right, that's right. <laughs> and Jesse written a piece that someone else named Bruce Springsteen crosses the picket line which is very nothing to do really with the story as far as I'm concerned maybe just slightly but I do think it's the because I immediately thought that both currently the writers and actors are striking And so that I think that's one of the reasons why they picked this for timely. So I'm going to preface this, that there was a time when I adored the TV show, The Walking Dead. I just thought this was I, I never was a horror fan. I don't like zombies. But I watched a couple episodes and it was so well done. It was such a good TV show that I just watched it and stuck all the way through the end when, like a year or so ago, they finished the initial run. And they've had multiple spinoffs and the latest spinoff, I taped it on the DVR five minutes into it. I'm like, I just don't care about this world anymore deleted the episode deleted it on my season pass same thing watched gray's anatomy every week and i four or five years ago i went i'm just watching this out of habit i don't care about We're still it still going yeah oh yeah still going i went through a spell where i adored brad paisley i just the moment brad paisley put out a cd or a record i bought it i still love all those but when his new one came out i just didn't buy it because I just had moved on. So I preface this to say, I understand that we can change our taste or we could change our opinion of an of a of an entertainment person or a a musician or something that we admire. So talk about what was the impetus of doing an article about you losing your I don't know how to put it but your fandom of Bruce kind of waning and if that's the wrong word please correct me
1: I think it's an appropriate word as far as the lab I don't want to say the 21st century because I really do uh, a lot of magic for instance there's some things on the rising and devils in dust that I enjoy, but I—I I,
0: I, I was curious if you'd listened to Letter to You when I was reading this article.
1: Should I address that now, or shall we? Yeah, get that's to that fine. Reason? Whatever.
0: Yeah, whatever. It, however you want to go. I just reading this, you did not mention that, and I was like, I wonder if he's watched, listened to Letter to You. But anyway, continue, Jesse. Go with yeah, your story.
1: So, letter to You, I had listened to a little bit out of a sense of obligation when it first came out and I really hadn't actively listened to Bruce in a long time and so my impression was this doesn't bug me as much as Wrecking Ball or High Hopes or some of those I would say really um, his some of his weakest work shall we say. And somebody, after my article came out, said, what about Letter to You? Don't you think that one was good? And so I went and I spent some more time with it. And I I will say that I think it's easily the best thing he's released since Magic. And I would say a a significant course correction for his career. Like, I, I respected what he was trying to do there. And... So, I respect the album. The problem is really working on a dream, and especially Queen of the Supermarket was the song that really got my goat, just shattered the spell for me. I had always seen Springsteen as a modern day Woody Guthrie or somebody who was really gi- giving voice to people who people don't tend to think about or consider. And Working on a dream really made it all feel like a cheap pandering show to me, to be honest. And so I like what I hear of Letter to letter to You. I respect it. But the spell for me is broken enough that it's not something that I'll probably revisit very frequently. But I, I would say the course of my larger disenchantment with Bruce... Started with, in alternative rock radio, there are a lot of acts that were produced by Brendan O'Brien, who was his producer for a bunch of records. And I've just never respected Brendan O'Brien's work at all. He puts on a generic brick-walled corporate sheen, and I think he was really a, a extremely poor choice for kind of the visceral organic quality that Springsteen goes for. And so even when I was a huge fan circa 2005, 2006, I just wondered, why are you working with this guy? Why do your records sound like this? You listen to anything previously with the E Street Band, maybe not on the greatest hits, but anything in the 80s or 70s and 80s with the E Street Band. And it's, it goes for the jugular. You can just feel it. And as I said, I thought a lot in my article, I thought a lot of the production choices that were made in the 2000s were... um, It sounded like a campaign commercial. I just thought they were really inappropriate. So I, I was always a little bit uncomfortable with the 21st century records, but it was when Working on a Dream came out particularly since my dad had been in the factory. And I guess in a way, some of Springsteen's working class anthems were something that I felt really connected me with my dad a lot more because I didn't have that factory experience or that sort of coming from the wrong side of the track's background. And it just felt extremely contrived and fake and phoned in and giving the people what they wanted to hear versus what he was really capable of authentically expressing. So Queen of the Supermarket really offended me. I bought Working on a Dream the first day it came out, and it came with a promotional poster, and I was so excited. It was the new record from one of my all-time favorite artists, and I felt a certain sense of betrayal. Offended for my dad's sake, but also, why did I pay my 1499 or whatever for this? like you it, it just left a really bad taste in my mouth. and that was uh, a dramatic break for me, I think, because Springsteen had just I had him on such a pedestal, and this thing comes out, and I really heard this complacent Malibu celebrity phoning it in, I guess, is what I'd say
0: and and do you by the way, I, I think most of fandom would say that Working on Dream is one of his least. When you're ranking albums, it's pretty low on the list of albums. Yeah. We all debate on, I'm not a fan of the Seeger sessions. I, I just didn't. I've talked about this before. He doesn't sing Froggy Win a Corton the way my dad did. <laughs> so, therefore, Bruce is wrong, right? This is just stay away. Ghost of Tom Joad is an album that I particularly find emotionally attaching. Why do you think, and you've mentioned a little bit, you were almost offended by this. Expand that a little bit more, because where I have the trouble connecting of the sense of betrayal, okay, he put in an album you didn't like, and he has a song that you didn't care for, but I don't, necessarily understand the sense of betrayal and i'm not saying in a judgment way i'm just curious
1: yeah i just i think he's a victim of how great he was when you've recorded darkness and nebraska and and all these classics how do you live up to that and as he admitted in broadway and in the book and everything else it's he's straightforward, that he's a myth maker, and he's made up a lot of this stuff. But there was always a visceral truth, like the song Factory off of Darkness really spoke very directly to the experience of of my dad and a lot of people. And so by the time it got to working on a dream, and I'd been uncomfortable with the production, and certainly I despise the Seeger sessions. I mean, I think just absolutely God awful. I don't know what he was thinking. And live in Dublin, I got rockabilly open all night that he did. But that's about the one good track on this two CD thing that I paid full retail well, price.
0: I will disagree with you on that. I, <laughs> it looked like it was a fun live tour uh the the waltz version of, of I'll wait for you and a couple other things that were good but yes it it looked like a fun concert much better than just listening to the Seeger session would have done so anyway please continue yeah so yeah I think.
1: To me, Springsteen had really spoken to a larger truth, even when he was making it up. People complain yeah. that the fuely heads and racing in the street aren't accurate for that model of vehicle or whatever. And I, yeah. I don't care about that. I care about the emotional truth of how it yeah. felt. And I could always rely on Bruce, I thought, to respect his audience and respect his subject matter. And with um, Queen of the Supermarket in particular, and, and especially after starting the album with Outlaw Pete, which, again, is just not something I can wrap my head around. But it, to me, it was like... It proved the commodification of this whole working man thing. One of my favorite lines from all of Bruce's lyrics is in my article, the bit about the... It's a sad, funny ending when you find yourself pretending a rich man in a poor man's shirt. I love that he was able to acknowledge that in the early 90s and look with a clear eye at his career and try to do something different. Mm -hmm. And so when all of a sudden he's singing this, I don't even know how to describe Queen of the Supermarket, but it felt to me like it was no longer respecting the working man, let alone giving his audience any credit. I felt that all of the emotional authenticity had been drained out of it. And it was just, um, I, I don't like the term cultural appropriation a lot of the time. I think if an Italian person wants to cook Japanese food and do some kind of fusion, that's awesome. That's what America's all about. But to be a Malibu millionaire sending your your daughter to Olympic dressage and all that, and then sing this really canned. Just uh, yeah, I, I struggle to even explain what the many ways that Queen of the Supermarket is a bad song. But for me, it was just a real lack of respect. I thought for the the people that he was always singing about and whose image was is bread and butter. And that's why in the piece I refer to it as it had become a kind of bougie minstrel show. Like I think at a certain point, as bad as working as a dream, working on a dream was, I think Rolling Stone still gave it five stars. It's oh, we need Bruce more than ever in this time. And the voice of the forgotten people. And oh, yeah, this is just a a canned caricature. I think probably my disappointment was primarily because it had just been so good before, and everybody releases bad albums. Everybody releases bad songs, but I didn't think a a lot of the material on Devils in Dust was very good. I like Devils in Dust. I like Leah. There are a few songs on there, but a lot of it just left me cold, even colder than some of the material on The Ghost of Tom Joad, and that's fine. But when it's bad in a way that undermines your entire ethos and at least made me question how much of this has ever been heartfelt and going back and listening. And even in the course of writing my article, I probably became a, a bigger Springsteen fan than I've been in many years just because it was so good until 1992 <laughs> i i really have very little bad to say up to that point but it was i just think that as much of springsteen's music was myth it was always coming from an emotionally real and recognizable place and by over the course of the 2000s and then especially on working on a dream it just seemed like he's churning out anthems to sell units and tickets and it's no longer this rock and roll adventure it's uh, a corporate enterprise now is how is how i felt about it
0: okay did you not feel like he bounced back with wrecking ball
1: oh not at all uh, i thought wrecking ball maybe there wasn't anything on there that bugged me quite as much as uh, Queen of the Supermarket. But We Take Care of Our Own just seemed like it was, again, a campaign commercial. It's just, why doesn't he just write a, a policy paper about why we should support the Affordable Care Act? It seemed, I thought a lot of that album seemed much more like propaganda and much more telling sort of an aging NPR fan base, what they wanted to hear. And it's, forget all of these working people who oppose Obamacare. Like, the real working man is what Bruce is saying. And, but Bruce is in Malibu. Bruce is representing the voice of celebrities who haven't been in a supermarket or or talked to anyone besides their housekeeper who isn't a millionaire in many years. I could see the argument being made that Wrecking Ball was a more professional album. I think it was the production wasn't as bad as Working on a Dream, but for me, it probably compounded a lot of what I didn't like. Because even on Working on a Dream, the song is a guilty pleasure for me. I like good. There are a couple of songs on that album that I, I think actually work. And by Wrecking Ball, it just, even if it was more professional, it just felt like the Bruce that I had known and loved had just completely vanished. He disappeared to uh, uh, Martha's Vineyard.
0: I, I don't agree at all, but I mean, I talk about my feelings all the time. So I wanted to make sure that this wasn't a debate. I wanted to give your side of it. Um yeah. The, from my perspective, I feel like he's, he has continued to push himself creatively. Westerns, Western Stars, the, I, Working on a Dream is one of my favorite, not working on the dream, Wrecking Ball. I, Jack of All Trades is a song that I was thrilled to hear live with the strings. Like Western Stars, I adored and the film, and then Letter to You, I think, to being that late in his career is to still have a little bit of speed on the fastball is pretty impressive. I know a lot of people gave him crap about the, uh, the covers album, but I was like, he wants to do it. It's fun. Let him have fun with it. Do you go ahead.
1: Oh, I'm, I thought the covers album was a good move because I will, I respect letters to you. Letter to You, I think that was a a substantial comeback in a lot of ways, even if probably my interest in sort of 21st century Springsteen. I just find, I find the whole masquerading as the voice of the working man when you have no connection to that anymore um, off-putting. At, at the very least. So I don't know if he has another letter to you in him. So I, I think covers albums are something that he can really still connect with in a more genuine way. I think it's I think it's a lot easier to interpret some soul classics that he grew up with and has always loved and probably covered in medleys over the years and that sort of thing. I trust him to handle that in an empathetic, genuine kind of way, much more than him trying to perform something like Thunder Road or the river or wreck on the highway or anything like that in this day and age.
0: One of the things that I live in Dallas, Texas, and we get a lot of crap that The Dallas Cowboys are quote-unquote America's team. And that was not a term that the Dallas Cowboys picked for themselves. It was NFL Films gave that label to them on a – they were doing a film about the Cowboys during this time. And they did that because the Cowboys led the nation in sales of – jerseys and such and therefore that's a label that dallas didn't pick for itself but they people use it against them ah the gd cowboys ah, they're not america's team they suck yeah (laughs) how much of this do you think bruce chose himself or that other people were put on this to him
1: i think that bruce is a very intelligent, calculating, strategic person. And I don't, and I, those can be good things, those can be bad things. But I think that something like appearing on Time and Newsweek in the same week, that doesn't just happen. That takes a very careful and deliberate PR strategy. And sure. So I think that he's deliberately cultivated this image of the new Woody Guthrie and the voice of the working man and all of that. I, I, I don't think that's a, a mantle that was thrust upon him despite his resistance. I think that people can argue how much is Bruce's vision? How much was John Landau shaping Bruce to his own vision and... I, I don't know where exactly to draw the line between the two of them, but yeah, yeah I, I, I think by the time you get to, it's going to be a long walk home, or we take care of our own, or working on a dream as the unofficial Obama inauguration anthem. I, I think ultimately, I think Bruce is a brilliant person, but I suspect that he really has a psychological need for the approval and roar of the crowd. And I think that need at a certain point came to outweigh his artistic priorities.
0: Do how much of this is because, and I ask this because there are a pretty vocal minority that really cannot stand Bruce because of his politics. Do you think any of this is involved, because you mentioned Obama and you mentioned the healthcare, how much of this is politics for you? I
1: don't think that none of it is politics. I listen to all sorts of people with varying views, and I think it's a question of believe what you want, Advocate for what you want, vote for what you want, donate to who you want, and whatever else. But to present oneself as the the symbolic face of the working class and then exploit that fame and those sorts of years of credibility um, to push something that polls suggest most of the protagonists of his songs at this point, probably would not support. I, th- I think there's a line between being a good citizen and advocacy for what one believes in and making one's music into a campaign commercial. Like, I think it more than once he's tipped over into straight up propaganda. And I don't, I think if what's the song try that in a small town or something that's that's pretty distasteful too uh,
0: yeah i just as we're I, talking uh, about this yeah jason aldean is being alive and it's a pretty bad song and so i don't we each feel our own way and so i i am a i i don't agree that i'm being manipulated but then i am i am a very um, lonely blueberry in a strawberry patch here in Texas.
1: Uh, <laughs> with Austin, though, like, huh? uh, isn't that changing with all the growth in Austin? I feel like uh, the the trend lines are looking pretty good for you, blueberries.
0: We thought it was going to be, but this last election, there was a sweep of every Republican leader, one including the attorney general that was under indictment. Our governor just vetoed a law that forced people in Austin to give people working outside in 108 degree weather a water break because of that. We shouldn't tell the business what to do. I'm like, first off, I think they would have done it anyway, but just it, it, the optics look wrong. You're fighting against people getting water breaks. So here's the next question.
1: Let me just ask you a quick question.
0: Sure, absolutely.
1: So I think one big issue with our polarized politics over the last 15 years has been with the rise of the different partisan media and people being in their bubbles and the epistemic closure and all that is a lot of Democrats in red states are doing most of their fundraising from people in new york or california or just nationwide the net roots and so they have every incentive to at least in the primary speak to the true believers in a way that can leave them a lot more vulnerable when it comes to the general like louisiana is a pretty red state but they have a democratic governor and it's because he's tailored his message a little more to ordinary people who aren't the very online. And of course you have the same dynamic with Republicans too. If they'd gone with different candidates in Arizona and Pennsylvania and a couple of other places, they'd probably have a Senate majority. So would do you think Texas has actually become more red again? Or do you think that the Democrats are maybe doing a better job of fundraising out of state than they are speaking to texans
0: i'm not sure i know that beto almost beat cruz and but then cruz ted cruz is considered one of the most unlikable people in the senate he did he got just destroyed by Greg Abbott. i don't know i my i joke that i send my thoughts to my republican representative michael burgess my two john corwin ted cruz that i want them to do blank i let's look for we should lead the thing on right now for gun control where we tried every we tried nothing and we're all out of options and i'm being <laughs> right that's a line for the simpsons hey Seems like you could get some smart people in a room and see what we could do because anyone would see we've got some kind of problem. And all my Republican politicians send me an email saying, basically, thank you for telling us what you believe. Here's why you're wrong to believe that. But please keep tell me, please reach out again to let us know your thoughts. And that's just the nature of, I think, politics now yeah so, yeah so the question is is are have you divorced bruce or is he sleeping on the couch and is there a <laughs> way for him to come back to you as i
1: said in in the course of writing this it's i had with the ivy exile in this in my sub stack and my general project has been yeah. more about um Politics and academia, and the decline of institutions. And the editor at the Washington Examiner had said, "Let's do something different. Do you want to write about something cultural?" And so I've been thinking about Springsteen for a long time, and but I probably only had a couple floating around in my head, and so I really had to do a lot of research and go back and review the whole discography again to put together something that I thought was worthy of being published and that could withstand the scrutiny of the very passionate Bruce fans out there. And so I'm probably a bigger fan of his today than I've been since 2009. Cause I, you know, I, not that I haven't pulled out the records now and again, but just really spending some time in, in a way that I haven't. So I, I guess I'd say he's sleeping on the couch, but the classic stuff is right here in the the master bedroom. <laughs> I, Darkness or Nebraska, born. I'm Tunnel of Love is maybe my favorite record of his. I adore those. I don't have anything bad to say about those at all. I think it's just a question of what was it that made Bruce so good? And I think he... Had this overwhelming sense of ambition. Like, I don't think Bruce is necessarily a natural, spontaneous genius in the way that Bob Dylan is. Dylan sits down and writes something on a a cocktail napkin, and it's a masterpiece. And I think a lot of Bruce's best work comes from him outworking people, just write more demo more perform more play a longer show like i think i think he wanted it so much that he willed his substantial talent into being genius and that's hard to do and that's particularly once you have kids once you think i'm only on this planet once i want to put my feet up like how are you supposed to maintain that kind of genius? I'm, I don't know if you're familiar with the British rock group, The Verve, who did Bittersweet Symphony. Sure. Their lead singer, Richard Ashcroft, is, I think, one of the greatest rock stars of all time. But it was when he was on a lot of drugs and getting evicted from his apartment and trashing hotel rooms and all of this kind of thing. And it it took that lifestyle to push him to his peak and now he's a family man and you you can't blame him for that but he certainly doesn't bother to rehearse he i personally don't think writes very many of his own songs anymore and he's phoning it in he plays big festivals and people sing along with his couple of big hits and i I think he gave what he feels like he wanted to give and what he had to give. And I don't think he feels like he owes anybody anything anymore. And Bruce doesn't owe anybody anything. And I I wouldn't imply that he does, but I think there's something to be said if you're operating on second gear or whatever, um, to maybe be a little more honest with the audience and yourself about what that is. So I don't dislike Bruce. I feel like I've come to understand the arc of his career a lot more in the process of writing the piece, but I don't think that he's capable with his celebrity experience for the last 40 years of Getting in touch with that sort of raw hunger and ambition and visceral passion that made his best work so amazing. So I respect Letter to You. I hope that his future records are better rather than worse. But I don't think that he has the authentic experience close enough to what his life is now to really be able to connect with what made him so special. So the his classic records are near and dear to my heart. 2023 Bruce, or 2009 Bruce, or whatever, sl- sleeping on the couch, and I wish him well. I hope he doesn't stub his toe. I hope he's in good health and everything like that. But I, I don't anticipate really listening to his new stuff or bothering to go see him in particular, because he's just, he's not that guy anymore. And there, there's no shame in that it happens. I love Jackson Brown and Jackson Brown wrote all these incredible songs. And then the well was pretty much dry by 83, 84. And I, Jackson Brown is maybe after writing dozens of songs, I love over a 15 year period. Maybe over the last 40 years, he has three or four that I'd ever want to hear again. Like, that's fine. But all good things come to an end.
0: So Jesse, the only thing I'm going to disagree with, a couple things. One, I absolutely agree you are not a troll. You are a very well-spoken, articulate person sharing how you've become disillusioned with someone who meant a great deal to you. So I, I I love that you came on, you, you had, you were nice enough to join me on the podcast and took it on faith that I was going to be kind to you. And I hope I was, I will say you gotta go see him live. And then I do think you will eat your words about that. He is, I was able to see three shows on this tour and it's there is, the magic is still there. The Thunder Road sounds as good as it ever did. Letter to You and him talking about his experience losing his high school bandmate. And I'll see you in my dreams ending the show. It's a very emotional journey. And I really think that you will enjoy the show. I don't think it'll change your mind about him. But I think you'll go, yeah, he's still giving it 110% and and he's not phoning it in for what it's worth.
1: Yeah, if, if, if I can get tickets for a reasonable price, I will certainly consider it. <laughs>
0: Good, And then you can come on and tell me I'm full of shit. Nope, I saw one. and I wasn't impressed, Jesse. Or, okay, I still see it.
1: No, um, I was so wrong. Thanks for enlightening me. Yeah.
0: Jesse, if someone wants to reach you, tell me how.
1: Oh, I would encourage everyone to come to ivexile.substack.com. I write about a bunch of things and I would say, in, in a certain way, the Springsteen piece is of a piece with uh, a lot of other things that I've written. As I said, I... I was raised by idealistic social workers and went to New York to make a better world and enlighten, get the get the public the information that, that they needed to know to make informed decisions and all of that. And what I found is you know, the Pulitzer Prizes aren't what they used to be. The Ivy League prestige is not what it used to be. And so... Bruce Springsteen not being who he used to be, at least in my view, is on theme. So I would encourage people to come take a look and just get a different perspective from somebody who has been accused of being a conservative, but in my view, I'm very much a reform progressive trying to save the movement from some of the excesses we've seen from polarization and people not being able to talk to themselves or talk to each other. And uh, I'm also on Twitter at the Ivy exile and you can find my email address easily enough. Yeah. If anybody wants to, to reach out, tell me I'm great. Tell me I'm horrible, whatever.
0: I am going to ask everyone to check out be kind. I always end every podcast with that. I'm going to say this again. That is, The beauty of art is each of us view it a different way, and each of us have our own experience. And just because someone doesn't experience the way you do it does not make them wrong. By the way, Jesse, my claim to to not fame but dishonor is (laughs) I just don't think Jungle Land's that good of a song oh Lord, I know. No. <laughs> they're like oh. yeah i and i get it i know how everyone loves it but to me it just doesn't speak to me emotionally that's why there's no judgment here because trust me that always gets people going oh you're just lying right you're just saying that no <laughs> i just i really do jesse oh everyone else does i know i'm wrong in feeling that way i just can't help sharing how i feel (laughs) jesse this was a blast i hope you had fun
1: i certainly did uh did you want to talk about thunder road right quick
0: yes i did i was going to get you out before i get you out of here i end every podcast with the mary question jay armstrong is a retired honors english teacher But when he was teaching, he would print out the lyrics to Thunder Road, give it to his high school seniors in their Honor English class, and they would discuss it as if it was a poem. They would discuss Bruce's use of the lyrics, the themes Bruce covers, and then he would ask his class at the end, does Mary get in the car? Jesse, that is your question. Does Mary get in the car at the end of Thunder Road?
1: I'm going to cheat a little bit. let me me ask you, are you uh, an ACDC fan at all?
0: Uh, Vaguely. I I, I certainly know enough of them. Yeah. One of
1: ACDC's greatest songs is called Jailbreak. And they recorded it originally with their original singer, Bon Scott, who died. And then there are live versions with a replacement, Brian Johnson, who's the iconic um vocalists that probably most people would recognize and at the end of the bon scott version the prisoner who tries to make the jailbreak is definitely shot down and dies nope no question about it but in the live version which is 14 minutes long and that's if you don't count angus doing a strip tease in the middle of it it's triumphant. And in in the, the live versions, you get the sense that the jailbreak was successful and the prisoner is out. And so my feeling on Thunder Road is, my controversial opinion, in addition to the others you've heard, is I really don't care for Thunder Road on Born to Run. As soon as I heard the Hammersmith version... Which, in my opinion, just blows it away on every level. I found the original almost unlistenable. And I think I probably listened to it in its entirety for the first time because I knew you were going to ask this question. And so in the studio version, Bruce sounds very gawky to me. It sounds... I wouldn't get in the car if I were Mary, let's say, for the studio version. But in the Hammersmith version, it's so epic. I don't think she could possibly say no. So my cheating split the baby's answer is that I think she doesn't get in on the album. I think in a lot of the live performances, she does. But it's that ambiguity that you don't really know and can't reach any absolute conclusion. That's so much part of the brilliance of the song.
0: I love that answer, Jesse, and I will tell you, I had another guest that, similar, he said when the E Street band plays it, she absolutely gets in the car because the song ends triumphant and there's this big emotion at the end when Bruce does it solo she doesn't get in the car because he just solo off and just wanders off which I thought was a brilliant answer too
1: and so you'd include the Springsteen on Broadway version as her not getting in the car yes okay I'll have to check that out
0: yeah I love that answer I think that is a great answer and you get bonus points for connecting AC and ACDC in the Mary question way to go (laughs) glad to please yes listeners go check out his Substack. go check out follow him on twitter let's remember to be kind let's be safe and remember if we open up our hearts love won't forsake us just let the music take us and carry us home thank you jesse thank you listeners thank you, we'll jesse. talk to you soon all right have a great Bye. night there we go another episode I'm about to go through a couple of things where you can reach me and give me feedback. Um, so if you want to skip this, I understand. But I do hope you check it out every once in a while. I'm available on Twitter at Jesse Jackson DFW. This show is available at SetLustingBruce. You can send me an email, setlustingbruce at gmail.com. You can send me a voicemail at 469-249-2442. I am currently doing a few other podcasts, Perfectly Good Podcast, John Hyatt from A to Z, where Sylvan Groth and I discuss every John Hyatt song in alphabetical order. My Babylon 5 podcast is Last Best Hope for Conversation, where Lou, Karen, and I discuss every episode of Babylon 5 in chronological order. I still am doing Next Stop Everywhere, the Doctor Who podcast with my brother in time, Charles Skaggs. And then finally, How Many Podcasts, the only podcast on the internet that counts, where my buddies and I discuss pop culture. You can go to our Patreon page and support the podcast for as little as a dollar a month. You can go to our Facebook page, like, and please, please go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcast and leave a five-star rating and review for all of the podcasts that I'm doing. It's okay if you don't listen to them, but if you subscribe and rate, it really will make my day better. Thank you, and I will talk to you soon.